0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney. And uh, good on you for wearing your masks and socially distancing and refraining from singing. Uh, the, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, so we're in that refraining period. but um, So we, I have full expectation that when we can, we will do all those things uh, unto the Lord for His glory. So we'll be in Luke 23, starting in verse And what an awesome God we serve What a king Let's pray Thank you Lord for your goodness to us all That you are faithful and kind That your love was demonstrated through the life and death of Jesus Christ Your power through his resurrection And that he has eternal life for all who believe in him We are so grateful, Lord, to be accepted by you, to be forgiven, to have a place in heaven, to be called your own, to be your ambassadors. And we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth today with power, that we would receive your truth, that you would fill us with your spirit, and you'd be honored and glorified as we worship and fellowship together in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith in God, it quickens us to hope in him, to take heart even in the most impossible situations. And it's like grief and sadness can pull us down. We can feel like there is no hope in this world. And we become discouraged and disillusioned when we try to find that hope within ourselves. And there is no hope in us, but praise the Lord, there is hope in Jesus Christ. We can be like, I think of a little child going to the beach and they're excited to go into the waves and play in the sand and they're having the time of their life but they didn't see the wave coming that knocks them down. And so the day is bright, it's sunny, it's beautiful, and and now they have a mouthful of sand. They're kind of head over heels, wet, unexpected, and they never saw the wave, but their parents saw them and saw them as the wave came, as it knocked them over, and they were quick to come and help them up. And, And that's what the Lord does for us, and we can't lift ourselves up. He sees us, and He comes to us, and and despair, it can drag us down like a rip. It can, it, it's beyond our control. The most experienced swimmers, they still need a lifesaver sometimes. It's not like the lifesaver is only there for the beginners. The lifesaver is there for anyone who needs saving, and we all need saving. Um, all believers need the life-saving power of Jesus Christ today. We need him as much as we ever did, because without him, we have no hope in this world God gives hope to the hopeless and praise Him that we can receive that by His grace. So today we're talking about um, after the greatest injustice humanity ever witnessed with Jesus, the Son of God, righteous King, being crucified on Calvary, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God put on human flesh. He came to seek and save sinners who rejected Him, who killed Him, His disciples, they envisioned that God would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, that they would overthrow the Romans, that they would bask in the glory of the Messiah and rule and reign with him in glory by his side. But their dreams, their ambitions were crushed with the death of Jesus. They were shocked. They were disillusioned. They never saw this one coming. It's like they wagered their lives on Jesus Christ being the Messiah. They had pushed all in and they had lost everything. And they wept, they mourned, they lost all. And praise the Lord, this sadness, it would be short-lived. It's like they grieved for days, but then Jesus appeared. Jesus rose in glory. It wasn't just good for him. Has someone ever said, like, something happened and we're like, oh, good for you. Like, hey, I rose from the dead. Oh, good for you. (laughs) No, this was good for everybody. Because through his resurrection, he showed that eternal life is available to all who trust in him, that he has the power to deliver on what he promises, and the world can never deliver on what it offers. Death resulted in eternal life and glory, and so it is for all who trust in him. What a hope we have in our Savior. So let's begin in Luke 23, verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before." We read that after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, he boldly went to Pilate. This took some courage to request the body of Jesus be given to him. Executed bodies were usually treated like rubbish, really, um, just to add to their infamy for their crimes. But this prominent member of the Jewish body of the Sanhedrin, he, he came out as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who believed Jesus was the Messiah, and it would have cost him dearly uh, for his honor and position if he had made this clear while he was, uh, while Jesus was alive, but there was no less risk after Jesus died. And he, he put everything on the line to get the body of Jesus, to give it a proper Jewish burial. It's like he concealed his loyalty to Jesus while he lived. He didn't consent to the Sanhedrin's um, decision to evoke the death penalty for Christ. But here he spares no expense. He goes to get the body of Jesus. And what Luke does not mention is that Pilate was really surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion was a very protracted affair. In Mark 15, Pilate commanded that a centurion personally oversee and make sure that his death was confirmed. So please turn to John chapter 19. We read, uh, starting in verse 31, And we see that this was confirmed, and John, the apostle, was an eyewitness of this. John 19, starting in verse 31. It's really important as believers to establish the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, so we can emphasize the reality of the resurrection. If, he was, if, we were, not, if we're not quite convinced he was dead, then how can we say he was raised from the dead? So this is an important point John 19:31: "Therefore, because it was preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The day of preparation, it was the day before the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, you were prohibited from work. So there were a lot of things to prepare, as far as food and things that you wouldn't, you could still do and not be breaking the Sabbath. And one of the laws was that no one should be left hanging because you were cursed if you hung on a tree. And so they wanted the bodies removed. And uh, the legs of the two criminals, their legs were broken, but Jesus was already gone. The death of Jesus was confirmed by a Roman soldier who thrust that spear into his side, and so it would be up into the heart. And uh, blood and water came out, and this fulfilled prophecy that they looked upon him who was pierced, and they confirmed he is dead. And Pilate released the body to Joseph as requested. John goes on to say that Nicodemus, a Pharisee and ruler of the Jews, the same one who came to Jesus by night believing he was a man come from God. He brought 45 kilos of myrrh and aloes, spices to anoint the body as they wrapped it in their traditional way. And like Joseph, it's like the death of Jesus brought his loyalty into the light, um, where his, his devotion was now public, where he brought this generous gift to prepare Jesus for burial. Matthew 27:59 and 60 it says when Joseph had taken the body he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed Joseph was a wealthy man he already had his tomb it was a new tomb carved out of the rock where he placed Jesus instead it says that this was located in a garden near the place where the crucifixion took place His thoughts aren't on himself about, well, where am I going to be buried? His thoughts were just upon Jesus, how he could could honor him. And so after the body was washed and anointed, it would be wrapped in strips of linen. A large stone was rolled upon the doorway to prevent desecration or any disturbance. And it's like the body of the man who is the light of the world now lay shrouded in darkness. But darkness couldn't overcome the light. It's like Jesus, when it was finished, he flicked the switch and he entered paradise. So that's an awesome thing about our Savior, that he laid down his life willingly because he could take it up again. Luke 23, 54, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed afar after, excuse me, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, that's the day of preparation in our text, and it ends at sundown on Saturday, that would be the Sabbath, because... Uh, You see that in even Genesis, where it says evening and morning were the first day or the second day, that the Jewish timekeeping is like when the sun comes down, that's when the next day begins. So it's a little odd for us to get our heads around, but that's how it is. And Jesus, it says, he breathed his last around 3 p.m. on that Friday, so the race was on to quickly have Jesus buried, his body prepared, before the Sabbath day began. And Luke describes many women who followed Jesus, even from Galilee. They had traveled to Jerusalem. They watched him as he was crucified. They noted where his body was laid, and they noted that large stone, which would be a discussion piece later. Missing from the proper Jewish burial was a formal funeral procession and mourners. We don't read of any mourners, and it was common in that culture to actually hire mourners who would lament the deceased. It says in verse 56, after the burial, the women returned to their lodgings and they did begin to prepare to further anoint the body. Could you please turn to Matthew 27 62? One really cool thing about the Gospels is that we have a multifaceted view of Christ and his life, his miracles, his teachings, and they all dovetail together. They all agree with one another, although the perspectives, as you would expect, are different. There was no collusion where they're all just parroting the same things. They're actually looking and and focusing on different aspects. Matthew, he wrote the gospel to a largely Jewish audience at the beginning, and he takes care to explain things that would matter a lot to someone with a Jewish mindset or a background. And he goes into the security measures that were put in place um, because among the Jews, it was reported later that the body was stolen. So he, he says, that's why this could, it could not have been stolen because of the security measures put in place, as we read in Matthew twenty seven sixty two. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. In the grief and shock of Jesus' passing, the disciples of Christ forgot he had said he would rise from the dead. The enemies of Jesus, however, did not forget. They remembered what he said very well. They, the chief priests and Pharisees, they're the ones who are remembering what Jesus said. And they said to Pilate, this deceiver, he said that he was going to rise. And we don't want the disciples coming and stealing the body away because then the last deception will be worse than the first. In their minds, they weren't thinking Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They're thinking his indoctrinated disciples are gonna come and steal him away and use this to their advantage. And I am amazed at the kind of influence Jesus wielded over his enemies. He's dead, he's buried, and they're still afraid of him. They're still afraid that he is going to um, show his power even through his disciples. On the Sabbath day, The the movements of the disciples were limited, being Jews, but after the Sabbath day, they're like, oh man, they're just going to steal the body away. And Pilate commanded that it be as they said. They set a Roman guard. They put a seal on the stone. If you were to break that tamper-evident seal, it would mean your life. And those soldiers, they guarded it with their lives, and they were prepared to uh, defend it with their lives. History shows that the priests and the Pharisees gravely miscalculated. They likely broke the Sabbath to appear before Pilate. I don't know how far of a walk that was for them, but they walked a distance. They asked Pilate if they could secure the tomb. Then they walked and oversaw the the actual sealing of the tomb and setting of the guard. The disciples were not making a plot to steal the body, they were weeping, it says in Matthew. They were crying. They were mourning the loss of their savior. There was no one to take up the mantle, there was no one to rally the troops. They all hope was lost. He was dead, their savior. They weren't comforted by the words of Jesus that he had spoke to them previously. That Sabbath morning Christ's enemies demonstrated more belief and conviction to act than the disciples. I love that God's work does not rest in the power of his disciples, nor in their remembrance of his word, but in himself alone. We have a God who does not need us, but he chooses us. He uses us for his glory. The disciples, they showed themselves to be weak. They forgot God's word. And at that moment, God's power waxed strong. And praise the Lord, it does in our lives as well. My point isn't to harp on how bad the disciples were, how forgetful they were, but to exalt the greatness of our God who chooses us, who continues to work despite us. Because sometimes we think that God's work being accomplished depends on me saying the right thing or doing the right thing, but it's God's work. And He's working in us and through us, and He brings things to remembrance, and He allows things to occur that we can't explain and that do floor us. But our God, His power is infinite. His word is true. He does not forget. And since He's the one doing it, we can rest in Him. Continuing in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Very early on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, women came to the tomb who had followed Jesus from Galilee. They had seen where he was buried. They noticed that stone that was laid there, and some of whom will be named later in our passage. It says they came with spices and oils that they had prepared. The Gospel of Mark says as they're drawing near, they're like, oh, man, that was a big stone. Who's gonna, who are we going to get to remove it for us so we can go in and have access to the body? Suddenly, they see this large opening yawning at them. The stone has been rolled away. And they're like, what is going on? This is odd. And as they stop to survey the scene, maybe they saw some tattered remains of the Roman seal lying on the ground and some uh, of some gear that was lying about of the Romans who had fled. The passage in Matthew 28, verse 2, it tells us what happened to the Roman guard. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. It's apparent that the Roman guard's came to themselves and vacated the premises before uh, the women arrived. Love that picture of just this obstacle. It's like the angel just rolls it back with an earthquake and just sits on it, just like, hello. And they're just falling down like dead men. They, They could not speak. They could not fight. They could not oppose the power of God that was at work there. And I like how the passage never mentions Jesus walking out of the tomb as if he needed to be released after rising from the dead. Like, thank you, that's a gentlemanly thing of you to do for me, angel. No. The the stone was rolled away so people could go and see for themselves there was no one in there. There were no bones. There was no body that Jesus was risen. They looked for the body, but it was nowhere to be seen. Continuing in verse 4, "...and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again." And they remembered his words." What would be going through your mind if you went to visit the tomb of a loved one and found just an empty hole? I mean, what would you be thinking? You'd be like, what has happened? What is going on? Something's very wrong. And it's ironic. What greatly perplexed the women was exactly what Jesus said was going to happen, but they had forgotten about that. They brought spices, expecting to anoint a deceased body. Instead, they were greeted by these angelic messengers, in an open tomb, an empty tomb. It's like they were alarmed at the sight of them, they bowed to the ground, and the angel asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? And it's the direct kind of question that's impossible to answer without implicating yourself as having done something wrong, right, like it's a direct, why are you looking for the living among the dead? If they trusted and they sought Jesus, if they remembered him, why were they there to anoint a dead body? And there's people who can do this to this day. I've seen pilgrims in Jerusalem crawling around, kissing stones that where Jesus is believed to have been laid and where his body was believed to have been wrapped. And we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus risen or not? Is there any power in these dead things when he stands supreme, living, glorious, and risen? Jesus is alive, but these women, brave and well-intentioned as they were, they lived as they expected Jesus to be dead. Can we make that same mistake? Jesus is alive, but we forget that he's alive. We forget the things he said. We can be fearful, worried, preoccupied. This thing seemed to happen out of their control. And, you know, God, this is the Son of God. Shouldn't God have protected him? How could this happen? And then we wonder how we can move a stone, some obstacle to service, right? They want to serve by anointing the body of Jesus, and they've done their preparation. But there's this obstacle that they can't move. Had the stone been left there, what would they have done? They would have tried to move it themselves. They would have wearied themselves trying to find someone to move it for them. But to what end? There was no body there. God was gracious to do what they could not. God did it. He moved the stone and he exceeded all their expectations for good. I mean, they expected to find a corpse. Instead, they found an angel reminding them of God's word and that Jesus was alive. The angel said, he is not here, but is risen. And then he said, remember what Jesus said when he was in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Jesus told them what needed to happen, what must be done. I wonder if they beat themselves up over what had happened. They imagined they could have prevented it what they should have said or done to change the results, that they could have avoided the outcome that Jesus said must happen. And I think we can give ourselves far too much credit and we burden ourselves with what we think we could have done or should have done when God has done something that he will redeem for his glory. Their thoughts were not taking to account what Jesus said and what God's plans were, and I can own that one. Sometimes I make plans that it's not about what Jesus has said. It's not about what Jesus has done. And I can feel remorse or guilt over something that God has sovereignly done, that through that He will accomplish great things. I just can't see it sometimes. Because we forget about God. We don't take His word to heart. We find ourselves without hope and we're reduced to trying to, to help our way looking for the living among the dead. It's like their expectations were dashed, dashed with Christ's death. Then they're greatly perplexed because they can't find his body. If they had had their way, they would have found someone to roll away the stone so they could access the dead body. If That's what they wanted at that time. But God gave them something so grander, so much greater, that they would find an empty tomb, that they would be reminded of God's word and that they would believe what he has said and receive that life. And I just think, is there something Jesus has said that you need to be reminded of today? And may the Holy Spirit remind you and show you again how great he is, his great love and his power, that he is risen. He is alive and he hears us, he sees us. Luke 24 9. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Some of the women who went to the tomb, they are identified for us here. We see Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had previously cast seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was Herod's steward. We learn that in Luke 8.3. Mary, the mother of James, and other women as well. So there was a whole caravan of ladies that were there that morning. And they quickly went back to the apostles and the disciples to tell them what had happened, the, the things they had seen, that there's nobody, the the Stone was rolled away. These angelic messengers, they told us. And and Mary Magdalene, we read in John, Jesus revealed himself to her in person. Did the apostles believe? No. These were men and women who were eyewitnesses of many miracles that Jesus had done. And yet they had this testimony of all these people agreeing, like saying, the tomb is empty. Jesus isn't there. Angels have told us he's alive. And they said, this is, this is wives' tales. This is foolish talk. We know what happened. We have a grasp on reality. But it was the women who knew what had happened. They had seen it with their eyes. They remembered the words that were spoken. Had the apostles remembered, they would have shouted hallelujah and jumped for joy. They would have wiped their tears, but instead they remained sorrowing. They could not bring themselves to believe, yet at the same time, Peter's legs could carry him to the tomb to see for himself what had happened. And he ran there and he found it as the women had said. He was shocked to see the grave clothes lying there, maybe like a deflated linen chrysalis without a body. And let's turn to John chapter 20, starting in verse 3 to read a more detailed account of this part. In the Gospel of John, we have an eyewitness account because he accompanied Peter. When Peter ran, uh, John ran with him and tells us that he actually beat him in a foot race. So he gives us these little details that are quite interesting. So if you wanted to race one, you'd want to race Peter in this case. John 20, verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself." Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. John arrives first, it's Peter who goes in first, and he sees the grave clothes lying there and says, the head covering or the handkerchief um, is off to one side, folded. And the Greek word is the sudarium, which is uh, translated handkerchief. And it was likely a talit, uh, which was a prayer shawl unique to each male. And a prayer shawl is supposed to be folded by yourself. You're not supposed to have help to fold it. Folded in a particular way, and it, it's very significant that it's pointed out here. It's not just in a pile. It's folded. It's neat and separate from the clothing. And I was looking up uh, Chabad.org, it's an Orthodox Jewish website, and it talks about their burial customs today, which I thought were interesting, that they're not buried in usual clothes, but they'll be wrapped in linen, that the body's washed, dressed, there's special prayers that are recited, and they ask for God to lift the soul into the heavens and eternal rest, and they say the body is at rest until the resurrection of the dead in the era of the Messiah. I was like, wow, okay. Men are traditionally buried wearing the tallit and folded by the wearer. So it wasn't like a robbery had happened where stuff's just strewn everywhere. It's orderly, it's calculated. It was folded in a particular way and the disciples would have seen Jesus fold it. And John, when he saw it, he's like, he saw it and believed. He's like, Jesus is alive. The body could not have been stolen. And it says, Peter, he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. He still did not believe. Some say, I will believe it when I see it. Have you ever said that before? I think we've all said that or thought that at some point. Peter saw it, but he still didn't believe it. He did not understand because he had not yet found Jesus. Faith begins when we see what we do not understand, yet believe it based upon who God is and what he has said. And our faith, it's not blind, it's not just because we've heard something, it's according to the evidence that God's provided. And he's given us eyes and ears and a brain that's important to use wisely. If Jesus had never ever been seen again by anyone, it would be conjecture at best to say that he was risen from the dead. Would you agree? If he was never seen We could question if he ever existed, if he was never seen. The Gospels give many accounts of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, to the travelers on the road to Emmaus, which we will talk about next week, to the disciples who gathered behind locked doors on the beach as they're going fishing, to 500 at one time when he spoke to them on the mount. One of the disciples, Thomas, he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared. Jesus had appeared with the disciples, he spoke, he ate with them, they had touched him, and this dear brother, he heard the testimony of the women, he heard what Peter and John had to say about the empty tomb, that it was confirmed, he heard the rest of the apostles and disciples say that Jesus had risen, and that they had seen him face to face, but he was adamant, he says, unless I touch See his nail prints unless I touch them, unless I reach into his side where the spear went, because I saw it go in. Unless I do that, I will not believe. Day after day passed, and Thomas did not see Jesus. During that time, those other disciples, they were glad. They were happy. Their tears had been wiped away. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit when Jesus had met with them. They waxed warm with excitement. I'm sure they were opening the scriptures, and say, see, see how God has fulfilled what he promised? See how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice? And they're just like, right on. They're celebrating, but not Thomas. He hasn't seen the Lord. He doesn't believe it. They were happy and cheerful while Thomas, he grieved for Jesus. His mourning continued. And can we blame him? Turn to John chapter 20, starting in verse 26. God is so gracious to reveal Himself to those who believe in Him. And it's no surprise that we're without hope until we know Jesus, until we meet Jesus. But I pray you meet with Him today. You seek Him. He will reveal Himself to you. John 20, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The doors were shut and Jesus suddenly came. The risen Lord, he stands in their midst. In this case, he did not stand at the door and knock. He just came right in and he said, peace to you. He had said that at his previous occasion when he met with the apostles. And he says that to you today, peace to you. He is our peace. Jesus, he addresses Thomas personally. He says, Thomas, and Jesus wasn't, Physically there when he was having that conversation. I'm sure people were praying for him, and Jesus, being God, knew what had transpired and what Thomas needed to see. And he invited him, Look at my wounds, touch them. Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. He did not say, Believe. He said, Be believing. That's present continuous. Be believing. Keep believing whether you see me or not. After I leave, keep believing. Be believing whether you understand what's happening or not. Trust my word. Remember me. And Thomas exclaimed in worship, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas saw and believed, and he pronounced a blessing on those who have not seen yet have believed. The death, the burial, the miraculous resurrection, the appearances of Jesus to many witnesses, they've been recorded, they've been preserved for us, so we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing we may have life in his name. It's not just I believe, but believing we have life in his name. Are you believing in Jesus today? Are you living life like the bones of Jesus are decaying in a tomb somewhere in darkness or that he is a risen glorified savior who loves us, who brings his peace to us, who comforts us in our affliction, who knows what we are going through? No matter what you're going through, Jesus is faithful to reveal himself to those who believe in him. Thomas didn't have to do anything for Jesus to reveal. He didn't have to crawl a certain distance, he didn't have to give certain prayers or offerings. Jesus came to him, and he comes to us, and he offers peace and eternal life to us. He has risen just as he said, and he will comfort us, he will help us, he will give us rest when we trust in him today. Psalm 27:13 and 14. It says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing and receive the blessing of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, our Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you that we have peace through Him, peace with God, peace with one another, peace in a world torn apart by sin. Thank you that you are a Redeemer and a Savior that we can trust. Thank you for the promises you've made to us. Thank you for your power displayed and your gentleness and compassion you showed toward Thomas. Was filled with doubts. Lord, I pray that all of us would have hearts that are believing, that we would be not unbelieving, but believing, remembering your word, rejoicing in what you've done, living as if you're alive because you are. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate your life and the life you have given us through Jesus an abundant life, a life that is glorious, that though there are pains, And tears, you will wipe our tears away. In you, we have joy forevermore. And so we praise you, Lord, that you are the one who heals the brokenhearted. You're the one who helps us, who comforts us, and who blesses us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.